Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to OEM Industry Update, a weekly podcast examining the latest news and technology trends impacting product development teams in the heavy duty on and off highway equipment industries. I'm Sarah Jensen, editor of OEM Off Highway, and in this week's episode, I'll be speaking with Justin Savage of Sidley Austin about the potential for future emissions regulations in the off highway equipment industry. Let's take a listen now. Just to maybe sort of start the conversation is um, you know, the EPA and CARB have maybe talked about the potential for future emissions regulations for off-highway equipment. Um, is there any sort of insight into what those could potentially entail that you provide or what they might be thinking they would like to kind of what would be next to look at to regulate as far as emissions? Uh, that That's a great question. And uh, I should say, First of all, thank you for having me uh, as a guest. And I think it's an honor as someone who's a lawyer who works a lot with engineers at companies that make off-road equipment and engines, on-road stuff too. But you know, I work a lot on a day-to-day basis with engineers. So I'm just, I'm honored to be on a podcast where the <laughs> audience is not a bunch of quarrelsome lawyers, but actually <laughs> engineers who make things, who make the world a better place. So we, you know, with that in mind, I think it's important as we think about the coming regulatory framework to look at what else is on the plate uh, at California Resources Board or CARB uh, and EPA. I think, you know, folks uh, were perhaps a a little bit surprised, but perhaps not that in September of last year, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom of California issued an executive order uh, that set up what we had got a lot of headlines because it aims to or proposes to ban the internal combustion engine uh, mm-hmm. by 2035. And there's a piece of that that involves non-road uh, equipment or engines. Uh, it says by 2035, uh, CARB shall have proposed and then finalized rules uh, that require zero emission uh, powertrains for non-road. And I think it's real important for people to understand uh, where feasible. And, mm-hmm. and why is that important? I think there's an understanding that for uh, light duty vehicles and 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 perhaps uh, increasingly so for heavy duty vehicles for class eight trucks that uh, you know electrification is is out there as a feasible mm-hmm. and commercially available technology you know hydrogen is increasingly as part of the conversation right. but as folks who listen to this podcast know uh, non road vehicles or off road vehicles and equipment uh, have challenges that on road vehicles don't you know first. Uh, passenger cars and trucks, you can fairly well predict their duty cycles, both mm-hmm. meteorologically, you know, where, whether it's, and also in terms of use, whether it's a grocery getter or more of a, a long distance, you know, off-road is just such a broad category. So you have a much more of a variety of duty cycles. And so that poses challenges when you're looking at powertrains to say, gee, am I going to have to stop and, and, you know, charge this, this vehicle up or not? 
And then I also think, you know, this is a category uh, with a lot of working equipment. So you need a lot of torque. You know, there are mm -hmm. many compression ignition engines. That doesn't mean there's not gas or spark ignition as well. And so those all pose challenges for either electric or uh, hydrogen, which is why I think when California framed this executive order, it said we're feasible. But, you know, if I, I, I think the companies in this space are aware that there are these technological changes coming and they're looking mm -hmm. at it. But I would say in terms of uh, priorities, it's definitely seems like it's a lagging indicator of both light duty and heavy duty. And I'll stop a moment and just, you know, give some a little bit of insight, you know, for EPA. I think it's no secret that last week, and it's, uh, we're recording this on August 11th. I don't want to get people confused because sometimes these <laughs> things come out later. That right. on, you know, last week, uh, the president issued an executive order in EPA, mm -hmm. uh, followed up with an announcement that they're going to require more stringent fuel economy uh, standards for light mm -hmm. duty cars and trucks. And there's a pending, it's called a NOx uh, petition. Uh, mm -hmm. before EPA and CARB for uh, heavy-duty uh, engines. I think between those two, heavy-duty and light-duty, that's going to consume EPA's bandwidth uh, in terms of emission standards for so-called mobile sources. So I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that EPA would come out with more stringent uh, emission standards for non-road or off-highway equipment uh, within at least the first term of the Biden administration. And mm -hmm. I think similarly, you know, CARB is, is very much involved in those two prior rulemakings I mentioned at a federal level. So I'd expect a lot of their focus to be there with the understanding, as I said, that they do have this target in 2035 where feasible uh, to mm -hmm. move away from engines. And then overlaying all of that stuff, resources, priorities, um, there's sure to be litigation. Uh, we as lawyers like that. I think engineers hate it because it creates a lot of uncertainty. But those are all factors I would say that lead to uh, there not being a huge amount of regulatory activity, formal regulatory activity in the off-road segment uh, for the next four years. But, and there's always a but, you know, you're yeah. talking to a lawyer, there's always right. a but. Um, there is increasingly compliance and enforcement focus in the off-road sector, both for OEMs uh, and engine makers, and I can talk a bit about that, but it's an area, you know, it's an interesting contrast because you do have this regulatory stability and certainty with some of the big rules, you know, being eight to 10 years old uh, mm -hmm. and mature technologies, uh, like for diesel, you have SCRs and, and other after-treatment systems, but you do have, despite the, the rules on the books being fairly uh, mature, you do have, I think, a shift in enforcement that's important mm -hmm. for folks to understand on a day-to-day -day basis as they're trying to comply with uh, the rules of the road, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Are you able to touch a little bit on that shift in enforcement or I mean, what do manufacturers currently need to kind of think about and consider when it comes to um, emissions regulations for off-road equipment? Right. I think that's, you know, that's a great question. And I think really, um, you know, I, I know folks are busy designing mm -hmm. terrific products and there's mm -hmm. quality programs uh, out there, but I think, you know, folks really need to think about uh, a three different recent cases that have come out that, uh, you know, s signal the kind of risk that is at issue. And, and then they cause some folks to think about how do we really manage that risk in a, a smart, 
but commercially practical uh, way. And I'll say, you know, the first is uh, a case called United States versus Kohler that came okay. out a couple uh, years ago, I think, at this point. Uh, it's mm -hmm. hard in COVID times to keep track of time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that was a, <laughs> but that was a case with you at the uh, EPA, uh, CARB. It was a civil case that led to a consent decree. Um, but essentially, the allegations there were that uh, Kohler made these, uh, you know, off-road engines and equipment, but they were not as robust as they, they could have been and paid mm -hmm. a significant civil penalty and had to have some compliance enhancements. And some things that really stand out in that consent decree are, you know, one, the company allegedly did not disclose uh, all of the auxiliary emission control devices or ACDs. Mm -hmm. I think after VW, people know more what those are, but mm -hmm. essentially... And hopefully this comes across as plain English. It's anything in your ECU, your emission control unit, uh, that reduces the effectiveness of the emission control system during reasonably expected conditions of normal operation and use. And the idea is, gee, if you're on a, uh, you know, going through your test cycles for your off-road engines, your non-road engines, uh, are there things that are not on the test cycle that happen in the real world, normal mm -hmm. conditions, operation use, that reduce the effectiveness? So the, you know, a glaring example would be if, if in normal operation and use, a, you know, your, your um, SCR doesn't work or your EGR is turned off, but it works on the test sand, that would be a problem. So the, in the Kohler case, the allegation is you're under the rules, you're supposed to disclose those ACDs. So the agency mm -hmm. can determine if they're appropriate, if an exception applies, and that didn't happen. There's a couple other things, but I'll stop there. Any questions mm -hmm. about how that works or anything? No, feel free to keep going. Okay, I always have to watch it as a lawyer. Yeah. As a lawyer who's <laughs> Irish and has kissed the Blarney Stone. Sometimes, as my <laughs> wife says, I can just talk and talk. Um, and so that, that's an important one. The other one is almost on uh, the other side of this, the spectrum is just that there wasn't sufficient quality testing done, um, mm. you know, for, for some of the engines, I think it was PLT testing that was done. So that happened, there was a settlement, um, an EPA uh, uh, imposed a penalty uh, mm -hmm. and as, as CARB did. And that, so that case is important, one that folks should uh, pay attention to. Um, you know, another one that I think is a CARB settlement that people should pay attention to um, was, uh, I think, against uh, Fiat. And this is a few uh, going a couple years back. But in this one is interesting. Under the regulations, um, you obtain a certificate of conformity from EPA or an executive order uh, from CARB to bring your model year to market each year. So if you've got engines, and equipment, you know, each model year, uh, you've got to have, make sure you've got uh, a, cert, a cert from EPAs, we call it an EO mm -hmm. from CARB, and you can have carryover that goes year over year. But inevitably, uh, between, you know, job day one, job one of production, and through the useful life of the engine, uh, you're going to make changes, whether that's to mm -hmm. the hardware or to the software calibrations. And under the rules, if you make a change uh, during production, it's called a running change or RC. If it's after mm -hmm. production ends, it's called a field fix or FF. Um, but CARB uh, for both, for off-road engines, um, takes the position uh, that you have to file running changes for off-road engines and field fixes. And it's not mm -hmm. 
And it's a little bit esoteric how you get there to the agency's position. And in some instances, CARB says, gee, you even need to get our approval. Uh, and, and I think in that case, there was the allegation that Fiat did not go ahead and file some of those running changes or field fixes to changes to the engine or the equipment or, uh, and, or whatnot after uh, and did not uh, file that with CARB. And so CARB imposed uh, a, a seven-figure penalty on it. And I think that case is one just to be aware of because there are, it's unfortunately, it's not straightforward. There are different running change and field fix rules, both at an EPA and a CARB level. And it can also, the rules can differ depending on what type of engine it is, whether it's compression ignition or diesel or spark right. ignition or gas. So that, that case is actually one. If you're in the compliance space at an OEM, off-road OEM, that's a good case to read because it gives you some insight into what CARB's positions are. I'm not saying they're correct. You can always challenge yeah. them in a court of law, but they're right. also your regulators. So you need to consider <laughs> that as well. So that's one. I think the final case is one that um, anyone who is in compliance or sort of the product side of OEMs just needs to understand and appreciate. I think it's a, you know, it's a, it could be a rare case uh, it's actually, a, a, you know, against a, a great company, but, it, you know, the case did happen. It's a case called United States versus, I think it's Hyundai off-road uh, mm -hmm. equipment. And there was both a civil case that imposed a multi, you know, tens of millions of dollars in civil penalties and a criminal case. And um, this is something that I, I think before recent events uh, with VW that wasn't widely understood or appreciated that um, the federal government takes the position, and this is both EPA and the Justice Department, that if you submit information to the government that it considers to be false, no, knowingly submit any information to the government that's considered false or knowingly omits material information, mm -hmm. uh, that that could be a criminal fraud. And I think most people, even today, you know, you think of compliance in the on-road and off-road space is mostly being a civil uh, compliance issue. You might have to pay a fine or penalty. It's really, there's only a handful of lawyers, present mm -hmm. company included, who <laughs> practice in this space. It's mostly done by engineers. And I think that's a good right. thing. They get things mm -hmm. done, they understand. But that Hyundai case is one to keep in mind because it involved what's called um, TPEM, the Transitional Program for Equipment Manufacturers. And under that right. program, instead of selling the most recent version of engines, you got to use older engines as, you tr as we transitioned to the newest tier, mm -hmm. uh, tier four engines, but you're supposed to do some accounting of how you do it. Uh, and in that case, the allegation was that there was a whistleblower uh, who came to the government and said that Hyundai Off-Road, uh, and I don't mean to impugn Hyundai broadly, oh, yeah. they're a great company, but that's that some folks at that company uh, did not follow the TPEM rules. Well, what happened is the government then allegedly opened a criminal investigation and so not only did Hyundai have to pay a civil penalty, Hyundai off-road, but then there was a criminal uh, indictment and plea agreement uh, pleading to multiple counts uh, of felonies. And so the company was indicted. Now for this lawyer, the other piece of this that people need to understand is their outside lawyer, I'm an outside mm -hmm. lawyer at companies, was indicted as well for obstruction of justice. Uh, that's just an allegation. That person, I'm not gonna mention his name, is gonna mm -hmm. go on trial uh, in the Midwest sometime. Uh, and the allegation there is that he allegedly helped uh, the company conceal information from the government by telling company employees not to use their work email, 
uh, doing mm. things like not submitting data and some other stuff. So that, you know, that is out there. And I think those cases give you a sense and of just uh, the level of compliance and enforcement activity. And again, these are rules on the books, but they're mm -hmm. being interpreted in a more aggressive way with consequences uh, for companies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, so what should an OEM or an engine manufacturer do to ensure that they are, you know, be staying compliant and following the rules as best as possible? Um, or even, you know, when, how, you know, does that need to start with the engineers in the development process of things? Or, you know, if you can maybe um, touch on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And I should have mentioned before I did that question that, EPA and this, you know, this issue of enforcement and compliance focus for the off-road segment and on-road segment for emissions, this is something that was a focus under President Trump's administration. It continues to be a focus. And there's something called a national compliance initiative uh, for, for defeat devices. And not many people know this, but it includes non-road engines. Um, okay. And it's for tampering and some other things. So you know, you're a company in this space. What 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 are some things you can do? That's a great question. I think you know, first of all, uh, recognize whether you have risk or not. And I think it's going through uh, your approaches, whether that's to defect reporting, running changes, field fixes, AECDs, and determining okay, are we are there gray areas or interpretational areas where we have internally as a company interpreted a requirement. And if we have, what's our sense of EPA's alignment on that? Uh, it can be the case that a company believes, particularly, you know, you're an engineer, you're not trained in the law, that you say, you know, this is the approach we've taken for several years. All is good. Um, just because EPA grants certification or CAR gives you an EO on a prior model year, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that, that, that you are home free because what can happen is the agency can look again at the issue and say, gee, we weren't, you weren't clear, you inadequately disclosed what you did, we're going to pursue it. So I think really, you know, trying to think on your major, your key issues, your ACD disclosures, your ACD uh, justifications, your, uh, your running change of field folks reporting, and then your quality program, your defect reporting, your recall program, you know, are those aligned with the regulations, uh, you know, as EPA and CARB interpret them? And one way to do that, and this is a second point, is mm -hmm. I think it is a good idea. It's not required, and some companies don't need it. Some companies would help have regular compliance audits. Mm -hmm. You can have a law firm do that, but you cannot have a law firm do that. There's also excellent consulting groups that can look at your program and give you a third-party view of how do you align with others in your segment. So this is OEMs for off-highway, you know, and those folks, and there's terrific consultants, uh, lots of places. I don't want to name drop one because then the <laughs> other consultants we work with get bad. <laughs> but if anyone has any questions, reach out to me. I can give you the names and they can help it. We do that as well. 
and we can, you know, we or there's excellent consultants can help you get a sense of where do you stand? And I think, you know, from a compliance perspective, you want to make sure you stand kind of in the middle. You know, you mm-hmm. don't want to, you can have the world's greatest engine, the cleanest engine, you know, nobody buys it. You can also be a technological and compliance lagger and you don't want to be there either. So you want to have something just a vanilla, good compliance mm-hmm. program. Some companies, as a matter of competition, they want to be the absolute leader in an area. That's appropriate as well. But uh, a compliance audit can help you do that. If you don't have the money for that, another way you can do it is bring in someone from another segment of the business uh, to come and take a look at your program. So we call that a second party audit. So if you've got product engineers, bring in something from your internal audit process to take a look at that uh, and see what it takes, you know, looks at. I think the third thing that's really important and that EPA emphasizes, and again, CARB emphasizes this too, but it's not required. It is something that companies think about is what is your corporate structure look like? Uh, This isn't to say that anyone who listens to this podcast is in this position or any off-road equipment manufacturers in this position, but EPA has had a number of cases where they have felt that the the certification or the emissions compliance arm uh, of a certifying entity, so an OEM or an engine maker, are not sufficiently separate from product development. And what do I mean by that? I think to certify a product for emissions, there needs to be close and constant communication between the product engineers and the compliance engineers mm-hmm. who deal with EPA and CARB. That's, that's not what I mean. What mm-hmm. I mean is EPA has felt that in some instances, the compliance arms of companies have not had sufficient independence to raise their hand and say, um, we can't do this or we're taking on uh, too much risk mm-hmm. uh, in this space. And they've been, you know, EPA believes or CARB believes, and I'm not saying this is true, but there, there is this belief that these, these folks have been, uh, you know, run over in compliance. And so you'll see when you look at, you know, some of the consent decrees I've mentioned, but there's several others out there uh, that the agency, EPA, and several of these in the Justice Department have actually reached agreements with companies to do corporate restructurings so that the compliance the emissions compliance part of the company reports directly into senior management or reports to the board. And that way there is that voice, that compliance voice mm-hmm. uh, that's separated from product. And again, it's, it's not a cookie cutter approach because mm-hmm. without the good product engineers having those conversations and being part of a, a panel or committee to talk about things, you're, it's never going to work. Um, but that is something. And then I think the final thing uh, is just tone at the top. This, you know, this area of emissions compliance uh, and enforcement for the off-road segment, uh, it's, it's, high, it's high risk. And what do I mean by that? I, I don't mean that everyone is, is a target of EPA or CARB. I don't mean everybody's doing something bad. I think generally people try to do the right things. They interpret things you know, in the way that they think is, is what the law requires and they, mm-hmm. and they do this. But you, you, there has to be a tone at the top that says this is an important priority and value compliance. Right. You know, because without that, there's going to be budget pressure. People are going to be under-resourced. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that even if you, uh, you know, it's an incredibly complex area, both technically and legally, Mm-hmm. And if you don't devote sufficient tone at the top, meaning your executives, your leadership are emphasizing the importance of this, 
and it, it, then you know you you could run into some issues because people will believe okay well we've got to get this product to market let's cut corners or do this or that and i think that's where problems develop and you know this is not I practice environmental law. I have a specialty in this area, one of the areas, unlike other areas I practice in. This is not just, you know, a regulator who shows up your plant and says, gee, I think your, you know, your emissions out of your stack seem high, or are you storing mm-hmm. waste site? I mean, these regulators control your access to the market every right. single model year. Even for carryover, you still have to apply. So the relationship's important and you want to make sure tone at the top that you're signaling. We value compliance. We value our relationship with the regulator. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely does. That's oh, that's good insight to provide to our audience for sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think some another thing just to think about, and there's not a clear answer here. <laughs> I mean, you know, lawyers love saying it depends. It's just <laughs> the emergence of environmental social governments or ESG mm-hmm. uh, as a corporate governance issue. Uh, in the olden days, it was called corporate social responsibility, but increasingly investors, uh, institutional investors, and analyst services look to companies to have ESG metrics. And there's a variety of metrics depending on the industry, mm-hmm. um, but emissions compliance in this segment, off-road OEMs, is an important uh, part of that. And so uh, you just need to you know, increasingly think about that, how that works. And one of the key ESG areas is climate change. And, you know, mm-hmm. we talked at the top, the pushing, increasing push to electrification. And so I think it is all of a piece and you're going to continue to see uh, this being not only just a, you know, a compliance issue, uh, but it's going to be an issue in terms of capital markets, investments. I mean, to give an example, I think BlackRock recently announced that, you know, it expected boards to be familiar with climate change. I think that's, mm-hmm. That's got people's attention. And so for people in this segment, it's you know not only dealing with your regulator, making sure you have world-class products that allow you to compete on uh, every segment and, and just deliver value, you know, whether it's mines or, or uh, operations in a, in a warehouse, but it's mm-hmm. also making sure that you have a coherent, uh, strong story to the capital markets that you value ESG, because I think from an, an investment perspective, it's going to be an important metric in addition to profits and losses. Mm-hmm. Right. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and provide some insights into what you're seeing as far as emissions regulations and what manufacturers can do to ensure they stay compliant. Yeah, I'm so happy to be invited to this. And if folks have questions and you know want to give me a buzz, I'm happy to talk about it. It's something we're passionate about. We love supporting uh, companies in this area. And it's one of those things, if you don't practice in this area, you just don't realize right. how much the OEM uh, off-highway segment supports. I just took a red eye for a meeting today on Monday, and I look out of the plane and there's all the ground uh, service equipment or GSE mm-hmm. at the airports. That's your industry. Um, And it literally enables people to get from point A to point B uh, in our uh, global aviation system. So I'm appreciative of this opportunity. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of OEM Industry Update. Thank you again to Justin for providing his insights into the potential for new emissions regulations and how they may impact off-road equipment manufacturers. And be sure to tune in each week for another episode to stay up to date on our ever-changing industry.